Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. World Soccer Talk podcast, the only podcast that focuses on watching soccer on TV, online, and apps. In episode 103, we discuss how US soccer is still reeling from not qualifying for the World Cup. We share our thoughts on the new Sunderland documentary from Netflix. ESPN Plus goes FA Cup-tastic. MLS unveils the changes to their playoff structure. And we have a bunch of letters from you, the listeners, in our mailbag section. My name is Christopher Harris, a.k.a. The Gaffer, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Kartik Krishnaya. Kartik, um, let, let's jump in. It's, it's been a busy week of football, uh, and, and of course, these next few weeks are going to get even busier. Um, a lot of the... Uh, in some ways, I feel kind of um, jealous, really, of, of a lot of the US soccer media, because essentially, they've got the next couple of months off with very little work to do, so they've already... A lot of them are kind of uh, either mailing it in or just uh, taking a break for the holidays. For us, you and I, Kartik, this is probably our busiest time of the of the year, um, and and the, the time of the year when the, there is a break, which is usually, I mean, July, August, when there's, uh, a, I mean, not a lot of competitive club soccer on. There's a ton of friendlies in Miami and South Florida and the U.S. So it it, it seems to be nonstop. When do you take a break, Kartik? Well, there is a break coming up in most of the major European leagues. I know there's two exceptions, Scotland and, and England, uh, but there is a bit of a break coming, although uh, England obviously doubles, doubles down on fixtures. So I, I don't know. I don't really get a chance to take a break. I, I mean, oftentimes I've tried to use international tournaments or international uh Uh, breaks as those breaks Uh, the problem is this season this year with the nation's league that gave us more to worry about during uh during september october november uh, internationals so Mm -hmm. uh, it's tough to find a time to take a break and i would disagree on the american soccer media there's a lot going on off the pitch uh in american soccer right now uh and and mls has obviously some very strange uh roster rules and there are a lot of people covering uh the transactions going on and uh, we're actually less than a month now from the MLS uh, combine and uh, the opening of, uh, of MLS uh, camps. So, uh, or, or a little about, about a month away from the opening of MLS camps. So there's, there's still a lot going on domestically. Yeah. T- t- to me as kind of a neutral, this time of the year is like kind of the, uh, the worst time for MLS. I mean, I have zero interest in the combine, zero interest in the drafts. You mean all, all, all these moves, uh, within a closed system, really, I don't, I don't know. To, to me, it's really mundane and boring. 
but we do have a lot of soccer going on so let's th- th- dive into that and uh, I'm not complaining <laughs> about having no break but it, it, it's just interesting just in terms of uh, things heating up in the next few weeks uh, FA Cup in uh, Premier League etc Championship etc so Kartik from this past week there's been a lot going on um, was there any tie or any match that you watched that, that stood out as, uh, as your favourite? Um, that's a good question. I watched, watched a lot of football. I mean, I think the, uh, uh, the Dortmund Bremen match was very, very good. Maybe that was the best of, of, of the bunch, uh, that I saw. Uh, I was fired up about Darby Forrest, but it ended up being kind of a, a, a dull, uh, match with, uh, neither side really pushing forward. Uh, so, and, and then, uh, the Mexican, uh, final both legs underwhelmed. I have a theory about that, uh, that we can get into when we go, uh, through, through what we watched uh, so I don't know I, I actually this year this this week there wasn't anything that really stood out but I'll say uh, Dortmund Bremen uh, was at least the most entertaining match yeah I, I'm, I'm with you there Kartik in terms of uh, not a lot to talk about in terms of just just pure excitement and pure entertainment I mean the the, the Liga MX uh, final to me it was um, both teams cancelling each other out so it was kind of you mean it's I'm almost picturing Jose Mourinho's Man United, or formerly Man United, but Man United playing against a team that was Man United, kind of that same style. It just was not not a good look. Well, this is the this is the issue. So these are uh, two clubs that have an incredible amount of support. That's why the television rating spiked in the U.S. and, and I'm sure did in Mexico as well. Uh, two Mexico City clubs. When we've had. Uh, finals with with uh, clubs from Monterrey, uh, Monterrey and, and, and Tigres, or we've had, uh, or sorry, Monterrey or at, and at, uh, at Tigres. If we've had, uh, 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 we've had others. Wh- who? Uh, Pumas. Well, uh, when we've had Pumas has been open. They're from Mexico City, but when we've had Toluca, who's from outside Mexico okay. City, in finals, uh, we have had some really exciting, open, entertaining football. At least one of the teams would play that way. For whatever reason, these two clubs. Um, and I'm not saying it's geographic, as I just said, Toluca and Pumas uh, play more openly. These two cl- clubs opted to play very defensively and not give us the sort of uh, open football we've become accustomed to. Now, I, I have to say in Liga Mekis, I have to say, if you look back at the finals going all the way back to 2009 in both tournaments, so that's about 20 uh, – it's a pretty big sample size. You've generally had uh, Tigres, Monterey, or Toluca in maybe 14 or 15 of those 20 finals. And they've all been watchable, very watchable, highly entertaining. So maybe it was just because of the two clubs we had. However, from a television perspective, which is what we cover on this show, uh, other than having not having Chivas in it, those are the next two clubs you would want in, uh, in a final. Actually, America is probably more popular than Chivas, uh, both here and in and in Mexico itself, but uh, uh, Cruz Azul is that third club. Yeah, so f- so for me, Kartik, from the past week, um, probably quite a lot of matches that you did, and, and also a lot of the listeners did too, the Liverpool-Man United match, uh, 3-1 to Liverpool. It could have been easily could have been 5-1 uh, if Liverpool had put the chances away. The, the Arsenal-Spurs game in the League Cup, uh, Leicester-Man City, uh, Dusseldorf against Dortmund, Swansea against Sheffield Wednesday. That's probably one that uh, most listeners and yourself included uh, didn't see, but uh, a win for Swansea, uh, so on and so forth. But what I, what stood out for me, Carter, for this past week was a new Netflix documentary, uh, something that we teased a few weeks ago. We mentioned that it was coming up. Uh, I had no idea it would be this good, though. I mean, so I, I started watching this on Friday. 
uh, probably about seven or eight o'clock at night and watched it almost nonstop all the way through till uh, probably about 12 hours later uh, on, on, on Saturday, taking a break, of course, to go to sleep. But uh, this was a really, really well done documentary series um, starting off pre-season for the uh, 2017-18 uh, season and just going through the entire season. And uh, this, this was incredible, Kartik. I, I, it, it's, it's hard to put it into words in terms of uh, how good it was, but there's so many different aspects of this. But to me, what was the most important thing to me, the, what, what, what stood out to me, this series uh, said a lot about absentee owners and this one being Sunderland's uh, former owner now, Ellis Short, and what happens to a club when the, when the owner decides not to invest any more money. And, and it's devastating what happens, and we see it in the interviews with the staff, uh, everything that happens where it's obvious that Ellis Short says, okay, I'm done, I'm, I'm not putting any more money into this club, and uh, I'm going to try and find a, a buyer, and, and I'm out, I'm out. And then we see what happens on and off the pitch. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think also what made this very different is that there were lots of attempts. And again, it's easier to do it in eight, eight parts than maybe in three parts like uh, uh, the Watford uh, Crystal Palace and, and uh, West Brom documentaries we saw on NBCSN. And in the kind of two three-part installments of the Juventus first team uh, that we saw also on Netflix. That was a Netflix original series, uh, much like this. Uh, a building of the community aspect of the club, a building of, of the culture around supporting the football club, and a real effort to tell a story of, of, of um, what kind of place Sunderland is uh, and how this football club and support of this football club reflects that community. The uh, Crystal Palace uh, documentaries that that uh, Goldhanger Films did that were on NBCSN, uh, they was you know they brushed through what what it meant in Croydon, South London, but didn't really get into it. Same thing with West Brom. It was because those were those were shorter, and if I remember, those were half an hours each, so about an hour and a half total. This was seven hours total maybe eight hours total. So very, very different. This is something the Manchester City documentary on Amazon could have done, given that they had eight, six or eight parts. I can't remember. But I, even as a City supporter, was forcing myself to watch that. Uh, I was uh, pushing myself through it, fast-forwarding portions. Whereas this, I um, binge-watched, Chris, and now have thought, you know what, I'm going to have to watch it again, uh, again real soon and the only other documentary about a football club that stunned that to me is the qpr documentary on uh, uh um the four-year plan which is uh now somewhat dated uh, 2011 it came out or, or late 2011 but it was a very very good look at a, at a club trying to push into the premier league uh, i think there's some very good films on goal on copa 90 by the way about uh particularly Spanish and Italian clubs and German clubs that are very good, but again, are short and don't necessarily get into to, um, as much as this did. So this is, this is a keeper. This is near the top or at the top of club-related soccer documentaries that I've seen. So hats off to Netflix. Um, they outdid themselves this time. This is one I would watch again, Kartik, and, and that's my kind of test or sign of whether something's good enough. And this is something I might watch I mean, in the summertime, I mean, if it's still on Netflix by that point, but in the future to watch it again. The, the thing that surprised me a lot, Kartik, was um, 
just uh, the amount of animosity, frustration, just tension that was uh, within the Sunderland ranks as far as the, the supporters. It, I guess in a way I'm not surprised in terms of just years and years of just um, misspending in the transfer windows. You I mean, it just... Uh, Really abject performances a lot by a lot of the players that seem to really not not give uh, give much of a try, but in the first game in preseason they play Celtic and I, and I won't uh, tell the the, the listeners uh, everything that happens, but from that first game you could sense you could feel the tension uh, within the supporters ranks uh, towards Sunderland the football club and the players and they from the first game they were on the backs of those players and I, I'm sure that's part of it too as far as the players feeling that and feeling the pressure just for, for a preseason friendly, and that kind of carried into the season and, and got worse and worse as, as time went on. But uh, yeah, I, I, this, um, there's nothing bad I can say about this series, Kartik. It was that good. It was really, really good. And whether you're a Newcastle United supporter or a fan of, uh, of any club in the world, um, this one is one to watch uh, for sure. Yeah, I, I think the. Uh uh, other series that that I really liked is the Salford City series, but that's that's just different and that's personality driven. A lot of it's around the Neville brothers, which is perfectly fine, um, and I think gives it a compelling storyline for a lot of uh, people who may not be interested in what is now a fifth division club, but started as an eighth division club when they bought it, a seventh or eighth division, I can't remember, I think eighth. Uh, but uh, uh, this this is just a keeper, and uh, I I'm hopeful that we see more more of this from Netflix uh, because the Juventus. Uh, first team was a little bit underwhelming for me. It, it, it smacked a lot of club propaganda, but then you saw club propaganda at a new level with the Manchester City on Amazon, which, by the way, I, I should say, just for posterity's sake, is very different than because I got uh, attacked by a lot of Manchester City supporters when I said this, which uh, there's a lot of groupthink going on among City fans these days, uh, which uh, it's, it's not the club I, I uh, began supporting many moons ago. Supporters' culture, uh, at least among their fans in the United States, has changed significantly. There was a documentary after the takeover called uh, Blue Moon Rising that was commissioned by uh, the Abu Dhabi ownership that, uh, in a more digest form, I think it was about an hour and a half, showed a lot of what we saw in the Sunderland documentary and showed City missing the Champions League that year, finishing fifth in the in the Premier League and, and losing to Spurs. In uh, late in the season, in, in May, if I if I recall correctly, in, in two thousand May of two thousand ten, so that that had some of the aspects of this documentary in it. But when City had a second bite at the apple eight years later to make something similarly uh, compelling, uh, they didn't. Mm-hmm. So just look at it that way. One more thing, Kartik, about this documentary is that uh, as I was watching the entire series, I kept on thinking in the back of my mind. This is something that the vast majority of Americans would never experience, which is the the threat, the the tension, um, the threat of, of relegation, of seeing their club getting relegated, and what it means not to just 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 the supporters, but I mean everyone throughout that club, the players, the staff, etc. And 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 that's something that um, I, I guess in a way for, for for a lot of Americans who supports you mean MLS teams and whether you're a fan of Colorado Rapids or Chicago Fire there's no threat of relegation so there's a very it's got to be a completely different feeling as far as that comfort level knowing okay well yeah we suck this season but there's always next season there's always uh, a chance to bring in some new players and start again versus this where you really get to feel what what it means and and, and not to say that relegation is a good thing um, but it does provide accountability it does 
offer an opportunity for clubs to go up, clubs to go down, and it's always about how well that 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 club is run uh, and how those players do, whether you kind of benefit from that or or not. And 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 that was something that was going on in the back of my mind as I'm watching this, going like, wow. For a lot of Americans, this is actually probably even more captivating because they get to experience what it's like to, to have a, their team go down. Yeah, I, I think that that's very true because a lot of Americans have theories about relegation. And this includes people who, who support promotion and relegation and don't realize the implications on a club when a club gets relegated. So yeah. it cuts both ways. And then the MLS fans who think it's a it's a dated concept or a stupid concept. Uh, that There are both of those aspects of it. But there is also, I think, uh, something that's happened uh, unrelated to this in Major League Soccer, which is because there's no accountability and those clubs don't have to change, uh, it, there's become a permanent underclass of MLS clubs as the league has gotten better and the top clubs have become more ambitious and you've had the Atlantas and the Seattles and the Torontos pushing the envelope. The difference is if you're a supporter of a club that gets relegated, and you're experiencing this now with Swansea, although you guys may not pop back up, but West Brom is the perfect example. I was on TalkSport the other day to talk about West Brom and uh, this West Brom effect, which is they struggle in the Premier League, but every time they're in the championship, they either get promoted or they make it back to the playoffs, and they're this quintessential yo-yo club. But as a supporter, you get to experience victories and you get to experience good football. And I can speak to this as a Manchester City supporter. Now things have changed since the takeover, but a lot of us were talking in 2005, 2006, 2007, uh, when Stuart Pierce was running the club and we were playing uh, football that made uh, – of what that, that, that Liga Mekis final looked very progressive. That was how bad Manchester City were in that period to watch, even though we were staying in the Premier League every year because we were playing that way. Thinking, you know, it might be good to get relegated and uh, watch some good football again and, and, and win some matches and not be trying to um, got out nil-nil draws constantly. So uh, there is also that side of it. When you get relegated, you get to experience the jubilation of victories, unless – you're Sunderland, right? And you go down successive years, or Wolves went down successive years a few years ago. But then Wolves um, have now worked their way back into the Premier League, and they're actually a top half club at this point. Um, yeah, takeover in the middle of that, but still, I, you know. It, and it, and in a previous podcast, contact, I think we've had this conversation on air about Sunderland. Uh, maybe this is off, off off air, but but in terms of Sunderland going down was a, a good thing because that's an opportunity for that club to then really go ahead and. I mean, wipe the slate clean, get rid of those excess players that are on high wages and, and rebuild and, and then come back bigger, better and stronger. But what we didn't know, perhaps, or what we do know now from this documentary series in terms of how tied they were to these different players. And the perfect example, Kartik, someone you know so well, Jack Rodwell. And, and this story, and, and, and he's interviewed, well, a very short interview, doesn't say much in this series, but just an example of Jack Rodwell, which is everything that's wrong with uh, professional soccer these days. I, I, it was mind-blowing. I mean, the, the, an individual like this, seeing the club going down in financial uh, stress, need, need fi- financial money, and Jack Rodwell decides to stay with the club rather than to, to leave and, and, and uh, give uh, Sunderland a financial boost. One thing that was not mentioned in this documentary, which uh, is controversial, speaking of players who came from Manchester City, uh, and it still affects, it still casts a shadow over Sunderland today, is when Adam Johnson uh, pled guilty uh, to the to, to, to the charges that have that that have thrown behind uh, bars. 
uh, Sunderland publicly had defended him uh, with the chief executive of the club and other executives seemingly knowing he was going to plead guilty, but needing him to play in a relegation fight. He played in the relegation fight. He played well and then um, pled guilty at the start of the next season or somewhat somewhere in the, in the next season, which was, I believe the season, maybe they still stayed up that year, but they got relegated the next year. But right. a lot of the executives at Sunderland, uh, there was a focus on the one executive whose name is, uh, is blanking out. Now, since, yeah. Since 2010, but there were a number of other executives who had to leave the club, uh, because of that, um, that scandal. And so that scandal was never mentioned in the documentary. That's the only critique I have of it. Otherwise, it was uh, it was uh, fantastic. They didn't have. I guess it would have been very difficult to review the Sunderland fall from the Premier League, uh, yeah. and then still make this as compelling in, in eight episodes. They didn't have um, they didn't have thirty episodes to do it. Right? They had eight episodes. Right. But um, yeah, I think the the timelines wouldn't wouldn't have matched up. But also, I mean, I, to me, it was perfect. It was going in right into just preseason, starting off and and starting. It from the story from there, because um, to go back, I mean, the, the, you can make two or three films on, on the the last few years of Sunderland in terms of everything that's happened at that club, but um, but yeah, good point, Kartik, in terms of uh, other things that were happening too that uh, were not mentioned. But yeah, so listeners, if you get a chance, if you have Netflix or just get a free trial of Netflix, it, it's 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 worth watching uh, for that alone. All right, Kartik, speaking of Major League Soccer and talking about relegation and uh, the, the, the threat of no relegation, uh, let, let's move on to the TV streaming news and uh, the first item. Yeah, so uh, Major League Soccer is going to adopt a new playoff structure for 2019. Uh, the season is going to start on March 2nd, uh, although I've heard reports or seen reports that it's going to start even earlier in subsequent seasons uh, and end on November 10th. Uh, this is a different playoff structure. I tend to like it. I know you disagree with me. Uh, I think it's going to put more emphasis on the regular season. Uh, there are going to be more teams in the playoffs, uh, which I think is also a good thing because what we've had, and this goes back to not having promotion and relegation. My preference would be to have promotion and relegation. But what has happened with uh, MLS recently is with six to eight teams or even more than that, because it seems like playoff spots have been clinched early these last few years. Six to eight to ten teams it qualifying, uh, being out of playoff contention early on, Chris, there has been nothing at stake for those teams and no pressure on those players. Then um, there's been no real advantage to home field advantage or having home field uh, or having the better record in the MLS uh, Cup playoffs unless you are going for the supporter shield. Jesse Marsh, one of my favorite American coaches, now uh, an assistant at RB Leipzig, um, who, by the way, I watched a few times this week uh, uh, on, uh, on Fox. Uh, Jesse Marsh had a team that won the Supporters' Shield uh, one year, won the uh, Eastern Conference in, uh, another year, so they were the number one seed two, two straight years in the Eastern Conference. They didn't make the MLS Cup final either year, and he offhandedly jokes that, you know, maybe I should finish sixth next time. Maybe I should tank the regular season. That way we get the first legs at home throughout the uh, throughout the postseason and we end up uh, in MLS Cup because what has happened with the two-leg tie is it's actually uh, – this, this this sounds crazy, but we saw it again uh, with Atlanta and uh, Portland, the two lower-seeded teams, winning the first leg at home or in Portland's case, uh, not winning the first leg at home, but then uh, – uh, you know, being able to, 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 to use the away goals rule to their advantage in the second leg and play on the break. 
and it's gotten teams that are not as good in into MLS Cup. I think now there's an emphasis on you, you're either there's one leg, you've got to have the better record to have a home match. And uh, the thing that I do worry about is that teams will play defensively with the one leg, the te- the lower seeded teams, which is why I would even throw in there maybe you get you, you dispense with with uh, with uh, penalties and you give if there's a draw you give you allow the the higher seeded team to advance as crazy as that sounds um, they do that in Mexico or they've done that in Mexico in the past mm-hmm. and in Argentina and some other places but just ways to uh, to make the regular season more meaningful and um, and promote attacking football yeah so um, <laughs> so so with this one Kartik, I, I mean I I, I actually think that the the one leg playoff matches are, are good and rather than having two legs uh i mean everyone's going to tune in to to that game from a tv spectacle it, it's good because anything can happen in that game and it's you know at the end of that match it's going to be over and 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 moving on uh almost like a like a league cup tie you I mean you know that if it goes to penalty kicks okay it's going to be you, you'll figure out if uh if man city goes through against leicester and it's done and dusted and, and they move on to the next next side what, what I have the issue with is, is that for the regular season that you got 58%, 58% of the teams are going to qualify for the playoffs, which makes, makes the, 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 the regular season ra- practically meaningless because you, know, you can start off slow, maybe, maybe by mid-season, uh, pick up some results, and then maybe in, in the last couple of weeks of the season get, get a string of wins and, and qualify. And, and to me, that's kind of a, essentially just a really meaningless season. I mean, I mean what, what's the... What, what, what's the incentive to watch a team when you know that there's almost a 60% chance that they're going to make the playoffs? To me, tune into the playoffs and watch the playoffs. And, and, and that's where things start to get interesting. That's where things start to mean more because then you've got a chance to, in, in a kind of a cup competition, essentially uh, have a chance to make it all the way through to, to the MLS Cup final. Yeah, I, uh, I tend to disagree with that. I just gave laid out why I thought that, uh, and I think the regular season in general is, has been totally meaningless in Major League Soccer. This will make it more meaningful, but we won't know till next season. We have to see how the consumers respond to this. But how uh, does it one, make it more meaningful, though, Kartik? I th- because if you have a higher seed, you host a uh, you host a playoff match. As I said earlier, Marsh yeah, went just... on record saying if you if you have the higher seed, you're at a disadvantage in the way the playoffs were were structured previously. Secondly, the more team in, in the playoffs when you don't have relegation pressure is a good thing. I, I would let 20 teams in, actually, if it were up to me, because there is nothing to play for because the regular season is meaningless when you don't have promotion and relegation. It's never going to be as meaningful as it would be if you have a relegation. So I would let 20 teams in because there's still going to be five to seven teams at the end of the season who have nothing to play for playing dead rubbers and their players check out and lo and behold, they may get called into the U S men's national team in the October international break and be rusty and lose a qualifier. Like they did at Trinidad and Tobago a year ago. Um, just real quick point, Chris, uh, on this, the, the, the dates have been picked to try and avoid international breaks. That's been a big uh, criticism of the MLS cup playoffs uh, recently is that it spans the November international break. So, MLS breaks for the international break, uh, logically. And there have been, what, two weeks between matches? I think one year there was like 17 days or 18 days between matches because of television. So that's, that's an important note. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Although it's an important note, though, Kartik, it does make you wonder, November 10th, if, if the uh, MLS Cup final for 2019 is going to be on November 10th, how that matches up then with uh, other things happening, which um, if the game's <laughs> right, on, on, right. on a Saturday, you've got college football. If it's on a Sunday, you've got NFL football. So how do you – and it's going, to, it's going to be on ESPN, so it's going to be uh, less, less number of viewers than on Big Fox – 
So where do you schedule that? Well, and what time do you schedule it that to, to have people tune in? Because you're they will not be able to schedule it on a Saturday. First of all, great, great, great catch, Chris. I should have pointed that out earlier. They will not be able to schedule it on a Saturday because ESPN bandwidth will be full with college football. And that'll be the same thing with Fox once they get to um, uh, Fox the following year. Because Fox always has a primetime match, unless they show it on like FS2, which they're not going to do. Uh, and then um, Sunday night, you're going head to head with the NFL. Yeah, okay, uh, that's that's a great point. Um, um, yeah, uh, so maybe maybe that that overriding point you just made, Chris, might blow up everything I said earlier because the television rating for this might go down based oh, solely on sure. the date. For sure. And also being on ESPN and not on Big Fox. I mean, it's, it's going to go down big time. Well, even on Big Fox the following year, because it will be up against some sort of NFL game. They will not be able on either Fox or ESPN because of their programming commitments for the foreseeable future, be able to play this match on a Saturday, mm-hmm. period, Right at, at that time of the year. That's why I thought the December 9th, 10th match uh, date, which was after – um, college football's final week of championship games uh, was so strategically useful for MLS these last few years. Now, there were a few years where they went head-to-head with uh, one year with the SEC championship game. Um, David Beckham's last match in MLS went head-to-head with the SEC title game between Georgia and Alabama, and the ratings stunk. So, um, yeah, it's funny because the, don't you think so much of what MLS does is to try and avoid – scheduling conflicts with football but this time it seems like they uh they're just uh maybe for competitive purposes which is a good thing um from a soccer perspective they've made this change but it is i I don't see how it helps the television ratings that's a great point yeah it's uh under the current calendar they're in a no-win situation i mean there's no way that they can schedule it unless it's a weeknight uh but then you mean ratings are going to be hurt from a weeknight match uh, it, it, it's just a no-win situation under the current uh, calendar for television. Now, for a spectator, yeah, it's it's fine. But for an actual television, which is where it matters the most in terms of bringing uh, new revenue in, and especially with a new TV rights deal coming up uh, in, in a few years, um, it, it's going to make a big difference. All right, Carter, let's move on. So the next uh, news item is that uh, ESPN Plus is going to stream every single FA Cup third-round match uh, in a historic first. Uh, This is going to happen over the weekend of uh, January 4th, uh, 5th, 6th, and 7th uh, in the United States. And what it means is that for the first time ever, every single one of the 32 FA Cup third-round matches are going to be shown, going to be streamed live on ESPN+, as well as available on demand. And this is huge because in, in previous years, uh, the FA Cup third round historically has been kind of a, a magical time for a lot of American soccer fans who are learning about the game or getting into the game, and they see all these games from you know, a small stadium. Maybe it's uh, AFC Wimbledon against a, a bigger team, uh, so on and so forth. Um, but the, the challenge was always that, to me, that the radio experience, listening to a third round on the radio, was so much better than watching it on television because on the radio, they would jump from place to place to place as giant killings were happening, as the suspense and tension was building. And on television, you were kind of stuck with that one match. And most of the other matches were not available on streaming or on television. So you were kind of stuck watching, say, Man United beating, I don't know, Hull City 4 0. And there wasn't much of an excitement in that. But uh, big, big news. And uh, hats off to ESPN Plus uh, for making this possible because this is going to be, I guess, in some ways, Kartik, we're going to be spoiled for choice. We're going to have 32 matches to choose from over the course of that weekend and try and pick and choose which one you're going to watch. We're all going to be all over the place. 
Yeah, in fairness, uh, Fox did not have this opportunity uh, in, in previous years when they were the rights holders because the FA did not stream uh, that many more matches than were picked for television. So Correct. I, I know there's a tendency to, to, to beat up on Fox uh, and, and say, oh, well, ESPN's offering something Fox didn't. Uh, now, there's no guarantee Fox would have offered it if uh, it had been available, but the, the reality is they never had the opportunity. Absolutely. All right, Kartik, what's on the next uh, news item? Yeah, so uh, Univision and BN Sports will carry the Florida Cup uh, in the U.S. Uh, for uh, 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 for this year. Uh, and uh, this is the fifth edition of the Florida Cup. They're down to four teams this year, but it's still some compelling uh, teams, including Eintracht Frankfurt and IX teams to be IX who been very good in Champions League. Unlucky not to win their group, uh, if anything. Uh, this marks the second year of a partnership with Facebook to stream all the matches also uh, live in, in, in America. I've called some of these matches in the past. I've, I've worked the uh, the competition the last two years. I don't think I'm going to be involved this this year, uh, but it's a it's an interesting tournament. Uh, actually, I've worked the tournament three straight years because we go back to when the Strikers were in and I worked for Fort Lauderdale and you and I went to Germany to see Schalke and Leverkusen play, uh, who were both in the competition. So I've, I've been kind of close to this uh, tournament. It's a neat little thing in January, every January, uh, that gives uh, people in Florida a chance to see uh, uh, European and South American teams that they wouldn't normally see uh, during the winter breaks in, 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 in many of those leagues. And Rangers came last year, which was a, very, which was a big hit. Uh, they're not coming this year, but uh, uh, it's, it's a neat competition, so check it out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If you're in the uh, Orlando area, whether you live there or on holiday in January, uh, definitely check it out. Uh, next news item, Kartik, is that BN Sports has refiled their uh, carriage complaints uh, with the FCC against Comcast. Now, this was originally filed in March of 2018, and uh, it was essentially the, the, the complaint was is that uh, Comcast was favoring NBCSN and Universo, putting them on kind of lower tier cable packages and while making being sports only available on, on kind of the higher end premium packages or the Spanish language packages. And they said that that wasn't fair. Rightly so. Uh, the FCC came back in, I think it was like in July, I believe it was, and said that uh, the case was dismissed without prejudice. So what, what that means is that uh, it was dismissed, but there wasn't enough evidence. So BN Sports has now gone ahead and provided the evidence uh, to the FCC and filed a carriage complaint against Comcast and uh, hoping to that the FCC comes back and says, yes, Comcast uh, uh, Universo and BN Sports and Espanol and BN Sports and NBCSN, uh, they all co- co- carry the similar type of coverage. They all should be available on the same type of uh, packages. And at the same time, too, I mean, BN Sports, I'm sure, is going to argue, too, that Comcast, who uh, owns NBC, uh, who has the rights to the Premier League, is in direct competition with BN Sports, uh, who has the exclusive rights to La Liga, uh, who is in direct competition with the Premier League too. So it's in Comcast's best interest to try to shut down and, and uh, not not uh, not provide access to being sports because that's going to help their product, which is the Premier League. And uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens in this one. But to me, with being sports, they're in a no-win situation before previously. I mean, they've got nothing to lose essentially is what I mean. So go ahead and refile that complaint and see what happens. Because if they do win that complaint, maybe they can get back onto Comcast. And if they get back onto Comcast, maybe they can get back onto DirecTV. I've been hearing more speculation in the last few weeks, Chris, and it's educated speculation. It's not hard data or hard reporting that BN might be able to make a go of this just sticking on Fubo and Sling. 
that uh, enough people are signing up for those uh, those services, primarily to get B in and watch La Liga. Whatever else you get with uh, uh, those packages uh, is it, great, I guess, right? But it's gravy uh, for for these people that they may be able to make a go of it to get at least through this right cycle with La Liga. I'd be very surprised if La Liga re-upped with them. But again, that's an international deal. We talked about that previously on this podcast. Now with La Liga. Uh, being concerned about the United States and having a partner in relevant sports, would they go in a different direction uh, after 2020? And actually that negotiation will probably start very soon. Uh, that remains to be seen, but uh, I'm here getting some anecdotal evidence that more and more people are just signing up for Fubo and Sling because we're now however many months into the season. And to, to many people, I know most listeners of this podcast love the Premier League and think it's the, the greatest thing since sliced bread, but a lot of uh, football fans, believe La Liga is a, a better league and a more entertaining league, and uh, they have been unable to live without it. So maybe BN has something going for them in that. As long as they have the La Liga rights, there is going to be pressure and a demand for their product. Also, according to one of my sources, uh, BN Sports is very interested in uh, bidding on Copa Libertadores. So those rights are up right now. Uh, also, I think I believe uh, Telemundo is interested, as well as some, I'm sure some other Spanish language uh, broadcasters. But if BN Sports could acquire the rights to Copa Libertadores, that immediately overnight elevates the, 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 the rights that they have. So not only would they have La Liga and Liga, but Copa Libertadores is, is a big deal. And as we saw from that River Boca game, you mean, if you get the right teams in the right finals, and you mean, there's, there's a huge amount of support uh, for those clubs. Okay, one, one quick other point, Chris, before we move on. Uh, there have been some complaints to me and some, uh, again, anecdotal evidence the last few weeks about the lack of distribution of, of Fox Deportes uh, when it came to the first leg of that River Boca final. And I think if Copa Libertadores remains on uh, Fox Deportes, you might have similar complaints about why is DirecTV, why are Comcast, why are uh, Dish pushing it to a, a second, third tier, an additional package. So uh, not that there's going to be a carriage dispute, which Fox files, because Fox has a lot of other channels uh, that, that they own uh, that, that, that are on uh, top tiers on those cable systems or satellite systems. But that's, that's another thing that's come up the last few weeks, which I guess people hadn't really noticed until they wanted to watch Boca River, the first leg, and it wasn't uh, readily available on their television because uh, of where Fox Deportes was placed in, in, in the packages. All right, Kartik, let's move on to the next news item. Yeah, so um, a couple of uh, uh, disappointing numbers. Uh, the U.S. men's national team ratings have sunk 47%. Television ratings in English, I would stress, uh, have stunk uh, st- uh, uh, st- uh, 47% in a bleak 2018 for the U.S. Soccer Federation. And U.S. women's national team viewership declines 20% in, in 2018 as well. One quick thing I would point out, Chris, uh, just in the, in the interest of fairness, uh, there were no competitive matches for the U.S. in 2018, whereas there were, uh, uh, I count, uh, uh, 14 competitive matches, some of which ended up on BN because of uh, uh, the, the deal, the, uh, the, the situation with uh, CONCACAF. But uh, I, I believe that would be 11 competitive matches that ended up on FS1 or, or an ESPN network in, 28, in 2017. So that could account for a lot of the drop. But... The overriding thing is you didn't have competitive matches. Why did you have competitive matches? Because you didn't qualify for the World Cup yep. for the first time in over 30 years. So uh, that, that's, a, that, that, that's a very negative thing. One, one quick point, because this has been pointed out to me since uh, the article was posted. Obviously, that was English language, and 
there were one or two matches in there where the Spanish language number was was impressive, but the majority of them it was not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're focusing on the, the English language for this one. And, and, and there's really no surprise with the TV ratings, uh, TV ratings for both the men's and women's teams uh, going down. But the big surprise for me, Kartik, was the attendance. And we know for several years now, this has been a long time coming. This is not just, uh, this is not just 2018 U.S. crashing out of the World Cup. This has been going on for uh, probably about two to three years in terms of declining interest in the U.S. men's national team and declining attendances. So for 2018, and yes, we know that Mexico was in the World Cup, so there's even more interest in, in Mexico than, than in most years. But Mexico's average attendance was 146% greater than the U.S. men's national team in 2018 for matches that were played in the United States, in, in the U.S.'s own country. Mexico had 146% better um, attendance. The U.S. men's national team, their average attendance in 2018 was the worst since 2006, uh, which is kind of 2006 was really kind of that year that uh, interest in soccer just just boomed. I mean, it was kind of a really um, and also at the same time, too, in terms of television coverage, uh, te- tele- television coverage of soccer exploded at that point. More and more uh, games, more and more leagues being shown on television. The U.S. women's national team average attendance declined in tw- by 22 percent in 2018. And out of the top, the top 45 most attended soccer games on U.S. soil in 2018, out of those top 45, only one of those games was the U.S. men's national team. And that was a game against Mexico, where you can guarantee that probably 90 percent of the fans or maybe 80 percent of the fans were Mexicans. You look at the top 45 most attended soccer games on U.S. soil in 2018, and it's monopolized by three things. It's the Mexican national team, it's Atlanta United, and it's European clubs playing playing friendlies or ICC in the United States. Uh, everything else is really, I mean, not, not even on the charts. So to, so to me, Kartik, I mean... We, 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 a year ago, we did a podcast we called, I think, The Darkest Day in U.S. Soccer History, uh, right after the U.S. got knocked out um, of, the, of the World Cup qualifying by Trinidad and Tobago. In, in a, and and at, at that time, we predicted everything was going to change in terms of the interest in, in soccer. In some ways, Kartik, I don't know about you, but I didn't predict, I didn't think that it would be this bad in terms of all the metrics that we're looking at being so bad in so many different ways. I didn't think it would be this bad either, uh, although, I mean, again, I, I think there's just been a, a decline in, in, in uh, enthusiasm about the national team going back to uh, Jurgen Klinsmann's last year. And in fact, I was told because Klinsmann did very poorly at the Gold Cup in 2015, lost that CONCACAF Cup match to Mexico uh, in, in October of 2015 uh, in, in a match that I, I think the U.S. lost because tactically he got it wrong. Uh, that that was there was very most of the time when the United States has lost through the years, there's been um, they've either not been good enough or there have been other factors. But the two matches that stand out as tactical nightmares were that match and then Bruce Arena against Costa Rica in Harrison in in twenty. Uh, 2017 uh, during qualifying, but there was talk at the time. Well, they're not going to sack Klinsman unless the attendance uh, declines and, and and revenue was down. Well, guess what? A year later, attendance was declining and revenue was down, and they sacked Klinsman. Uh, but they were not able to turn turn the situation around. So this has been now three and a half years in coming, 
uh, really the Jamaica match, uh, losing that match, and even just the play in that Gold Cup in 2015 was to trigger. Uh, and then the, the response from the U.S. Soccer Federation was to try and offset the revenue loss by increasing ticket prices, which has alienated the supporters' base even more. So uh, this is a big problem. And look, I, you may disagree with me, Chris, uh, uh, but I um, – Atlanta United is fantastic. What's happening with them? You know, all these Premier League matches being on television in the United States, it's great. And Fan Fest and all that stuff. Uh, Liga Emeki, fantastic uh, numbers for that. Without the U.S. men's national team being back at the level it was at between 2000 and I'd say 1999 when they made a good run in the Confederations Cup and 2000 and 11 or 12 of of taking that whole decade of the explosive growth of soccer from like 2005 to 2015, really that whole period Uh, maybe. So maybe until 2015 without the U S men's national team being at that level, I think you're going to see soccer's growth uh, plateau and maybe even just stagnate and decline. Absolutely. So it's critical. They get this right. And we have a federation right now, Chris, that isn't getting it right. They're not very transparent. They're not uh, very open. We just, had an election for i have to bring this up i know this is kind of off topic for we we were going to have a competitive election with 10 or 12 candidates for vice president of u.s soccer once a former player started making noises a former women's player who was on the athletes council cindy parlo cone started making noises about running um the freeze full uh the 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 field froze people decided they weren't going to run and those who still wanted to run realized they couldn't win they didn't have a path to victory or couldn't even get the uh the, the, the letters to qualify to be on the ballot, and she's running unopposed. So we're not even having the, the discussion and dialogue and debate we need to change this thing in this country. There's, there's a lot of people, Kartik, that blame Jurgen Klinsmann for this decline, and I, I think yourself included. To me, the blame is at Major League Soccer, and, and I think Klinsmann was right in 2014 when he came out and said that, here's a quote from him, it says, there's nothing I can do about it, which is talking about the, 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 the decline in form and, and uh, the quality of play. Uh, he says, I made it clear to Clint Dempsey, uh, his move back, and, and Michael Bradley's move back, that it's going to be very difficult to keep the same level that they experienced at the places where they were. It's just reality. It's being honest. And he was right in 2014. He said that all these players uh, c- coming from Europe back to Major League Soccer is going to hurt the national team. And I think that's, that's a lot of people blame Klinsman for kind of the decline of interest and morale and, and kind of the interest in the U.S. and the success, really of U.S. men's national team. But there's a direct correlation between Major League Soccer and the U.S. men's national team. There's no surprise that U.S. men's national team is doing so poorly and it's a direct result of Major League Soccer having a lot of these you mean, players from Central America, South America come through the system, having so many teams where the, the quality level is spread thin, having a lot of these Americans coming from Europe back to, uh, to play in Major League Soccer. And now you have some younger players now. And Garber, I think, has admitted that, uh, yeah, it's actually a good thing to have these younger players going out to Europe and getting experience there, which is in direct contradiction to what he said uh, <laughs> right. a, few, a few years ago. And he had this big, huge... I mean, he, he kind of blew up. I mean, he went, he went crazy when, when, when Klinsman had said these things because he felt it was a direct attack on Major League Soccer. But to me, the reason that we're in this mess is, is because of Major League Soccer. So, so um, yes and no. Okay, I, I don't think you can put all the blame on one entity. I don't put all the blame on Klinsman. What I do say is that this was happening. This was a problem. MLS was doing it for business reasons. Players were, were, were coming back to Major League Soccer uh, for whatever reason, monetary reasons, Klinsman as a manager 
was um, not tactically savvy enough to work around it and, uh, quite honestly, was constantly in the press throwing people under the bus to deflect from his own failings. That having been said, there's no question what you just said is correct. I don't attribute it 100 percent of the blame. I'd say maybe it's 50 percent of the blame. Um, but here's an important note uh, as I'm this this holiday season. I should have mentioned this at the, at the outset when you said uh, that this is the busiest time of the year. I'm making myself even busier because I've decided to go back and watch a lot of Columbus crew matches to get a, get an actual feel for Greg Berhalter's tactics, Greg Berhalter's style of play as he takes over the U.S. job. Uh, I know there's been just a lot of narrative that, oh, he's a lousy coach or, oh, he's a he's great coach. He's, he's, he's like our version of Pep Guardiola. Uh, whatever the case, I'm watching a lot of crew matches, Chris, and I will tell you I, I, I'm impressed with Berhalter tactically, although I haven't written my piece or gotten my final analysis in yet. But you know what? The reason his teams are successful tactically and he has a style of play is because he's filled that roster with foreign players, particularly on the attacking end. So right. that goes back to the point that you're making, which is you know, all the influx of players from Central America and South America and the Caribbean and in, um, in, in uh, Berhalter's case, some players from Africa uh, has uh, put Americans in a position where they're not um, either they're comfortable, uh, highly paid guys like Dempsey who don't have to fight for their spot or they're not getting game time at all, young American players, because mm-hmm. of the influx of foreign players. It's, it's bad both ways. And then those guys, like we've seen with Haji Wright and Weston McKinney, uh, should have mentioned that with Schalke, one of the, one of the teams I've watched this week, uh, have, have had to go overseas at the age of 18 uh, to work their way into the first team of a big German club. And they combined uh, for a goal yesterday against Leverkusen. Uh, Schalke-Leverkusen match is a match you and I attended a few years ago, actually, in Germany. And it was great to see one American um, create a goal for another American. Neither of those guys played in MLS. In the case of Haji Wright, he's a guy who played in NASL and uh, uh, made the move and played in NPSL and made the move at 18 to um, during the Florida Cup, actually, in 2018. is when Schalke announced they were going to sign him, or 20. 15, 2016 it would have been uh, overseas, but that's because of what you're saying about Major League Soccer. So a lot of problems here. Yeah, if we look back at the attendances in 2018 for the U.S. men's national team, the average attendance was roughly 24,000 people, which which is in a in a you mean a country of what 300 million people. Uh, I mean, there's enough support even during an off year, even when the the U.S. men's national team isn't doing that well. You would think to be greater than 24,000 uh, average attendance. Kartik, that's the same average attendance as uh, the, the, t- the attendance for Nottingham Forest in the championship. Just, just goes to show kind of the level that the U.S. men's national team is at right now. Uh, to yeah. me, I mean, a lot of complaints from the U.S. So- uh, soccer fans were, well, the ticket prices are too high. Which is true. The ticket prices are too high, but that doesn't excuse. You mean the Mexican fans and the Colombian fans and the fans from all these other countries don't seem to have as much of a problem with that. They go out and support their the country. They go out and cheer for their team. So I, I guess in some ways you can't have it both ways. In in terms of that, you either support the U.S. men's national team and you go out and support your country, or, or you don't. And in the case of Mexico and the case of Colombia and Brazil and these other teams, whenever they come and play. The vast majority of those crowds or fans are from either from that country or of that country. 
Well, oh, but they have to, not the Mexican fans, but the Colombian fans and, and et cetera, have to buy a ticket for one or two matches in the U.S. each year. Uh, U.S. fans are expected to buy tickets for 10 or 12 matches. Secondly, and I think this, you're going to begin to see this with European friendlies too, Chris, or maybe you did begin to see it a little bit this past year. Uh, there is a... Uh, fatigue of friendlies, I think, that has developed as American soccer fans have gotten more sophisticated. In 2006, the, the year you referenced uh, before, everyone was excited. Manchester United came with Chelsea. I mean, I, 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 yeah, yeah. I, I think that's absolutely no. There was a more sophisticated. That's, that's, the, that's the narrative. That's the narrative. No, 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 no. that's not the narrative. The, nar- that's reality. the, the reality the is, is that is the attendances that- have never been bigger for International Champions Cup. Everything. Nineteen thousand people at a Man City game, or whatever, twenty thousand in Miami. It was, I think, I think about thirty thousand, thirty to forty thousand people. Um, the crowd didn't look like that. Um, well, I, I was there, Kartik. I was there. It was at thirty to forty thousand people at, at that crowd? But uh, that's just one game. There's there's a whole host of games being let, played let me, throughout let me the entire country. Point. I think a lot of American fans, and the people buying tickets might be newer fans. A lot of American fans who who have. Uh, uh, watch soccer for a number of years now, know the difference between a friendly and a competitive match, which is why, you know, your point about the Hirona-Barcelona match, if it had come to Miami, that would have sold out, and I think there would have been a lot of enthusiasm because it's a real game. There is more sophistication about what is a friendly and what is a competitive match now than there was in 2006 among core soccer fans. So I think in general, the U.S. friendlies uh, were probably going to decline in attendance, but the That's apathy... Not true. That, that's I, that's I, not I true. think it's absolutely true. Talk to some people, Chris. Kart- just talk Kartik, to people who, who are Okay, let me game. just throw out some numbers at you. 71,000 people tuning in, uh, watched uh, Real Madrid against Juventus at FedEx Field. You had 66,000 Barcelona against Spurs at the Rose Bowl. Do you, you have had, an average for all the matches? It was, okay, mu- it was you, much greater than the U.S. men's national team. It's probably, well, okay, I'm, but I'm, it's probably I'm like 40,000 40 to 50,000 probably average. Okay. You're not, uh, I mean, the narrative is, and this, no, 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 this you, comes from Chris, a lot of... Chris, I think you've missed my point completely. Um, I, I, I well, we know, Carson, let me just finish. We know, we all know, we're, we're, we're intelligent people. We know that when we go to these matches and International Champions Cup uh, basically kind of uh, showcases it as a, I mean, a must-win must match. We, we know, we're smart enough to know that this is a glorified friendly. But the reality is, is that for, well, well, no matter what you call it, whether it's a meaningless friendly or glorified friendly, is fans want to go out and watch their team. So whether you're a fan of Manchester City or Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund or Liverpool or Manchester United, you want to go out and support your team. This is an opportunity yes, for you clubs, to see... You, those, club, those clubs. Okay, this is my point. Um, I, I, you bring Real Madrid anywhere in the country, they're going to get 100,000 people. The stadium seats 100,000. Barcelona, 100,000. My point is second-tier teams from England, Germany, uh, Europe, uh, Latin America, when they come to the country, their attendances are not as high as they used to be. You, could, you, you throw Everton or you know, Swansea or Aston Villa somewhere, they're not going to get 40,000 people like they used to. Secondly, uh, the they, U.S. They men's national team friendly... Well, but if you cherry pick the top teams, yeah, the support is amazing. But I would like to see a, a metric where all the friendlies involving European teams are average. Because I think um, when those teams come, they're not drawing the numbers that they used to because there's just a recognition it's a friendly and there are only certain teams that move the needle in the U.S. It's like 14 teams. Um, so that, that's my point. The point is, in general, I think 
fans have gotten more sophisticated. They know the difference between friendlies and non-friendlies, and particularly with the U.S. men's national team, um, they have gotten conditioned to realizing friendlies are meaningless because guess what? The U.S. has won an awful lot of meaningless friendlies, winning in Italy, winning in Germany, winning in Holland, winning, you know, all these different places, and then it didn't translate to anything. So I think, in general, the American fan is more jaded about uh, buying tickets for friendlies. Uh, this all having been said, you know, we can argue this till we're blue in the face. There is an apathy problem, and the U.S. Soccer Federation isn't doing anything to solve it. I mean, the question is, Chris, this is the overriding question, and you, you can give me an answer. Do they really think, the elites who run the federation, that simply getting the uh, hosting rights to the 2026 World Cup solves all of these problems? Because that's the way they're acting. Yeah, yeah. They, they believe it. They're behaving like that is the nirvana, that is the catch-all, that is solves everything. So who cares about any of these other issues? Right. They're pretending like it's 1985 and no one has any access to the sport in this country. And boom, you're going to bring this event here and it's going to be uh, – everything is going to be solved. They don't realize now in 2018 – there are we have been through cycles where the U.S. has been pretty good, pretty competitive at the international level. I, I mean, as much as we, you and I talk about England, um, I, I have to point out the U.S. finished ahead of England in both the 2010 and 2014 World Cups. So we've seen some heights. And now you've got a fan base that's more sophisticated, more um, in tune to global football. They can't be conned and snowed as easily. That, I guess that's my overriding point about the friendlies. They, they can't be conned. They're not being um, conned, Kartik. The numbers prove that... Chris, this is not about European friendlies. Okay, I'm sorry I got off topic with that. This is about the U.S. Soccer Federation. So okay, okay, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> they, they can't get conned in terms of okay, this is an important match, or, oh, we're making progress towards our ultimate goal of winning the World Cup in whatever year. At one time it was 2010. That didn't happen. But the U.S. was competitive internationally in 2010. They didn't win the World Cup, but they were a competitive national side, and a national side that, that uh, opposition generally did not want to play. I, I wouldn't say they feared the U.S., but they were weary of them. What we have now is a cycle where the United States is in decline. Uh, the fans know it. The fans have been sophisticated enough and been around enough now that they've recognized what the difference between a successful or partially successful national team at the international level looks like and then what they've been handed now. And the U.S. Soccer Federation's retort to all of this is, hey, we're hosting the 2026 World Cup and it will spawn a new generation of this, that and the other thing. Uh, on uh, uh, for the national program and for soccer in this country, and the supporters aren't buying that. So the question is, the next couple of years, do we re uh, are we able to shift this narrative to talk about the fact that the 2026 World Cup won't make that much of a difference because the U.S. was already at a certain. It's not like '94 where the U.S. had nothing, no infrastructure, nothing. 2026, we're already at this pretty established level, or we were in 2015, 2016. We're now in decline. Um, that it won't make that much of a difference, and so we have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G to fix it. That's the big question, and I think that's the conversation no one wants to have at the federation. They want to talk about hosting the 2026 World Cup. And the, I don't think it's meaningful at this point. At the end of the day, people will basically... I mean, the, the, the ticket, the ticket uh, numbers will show the interest. So fans are showing the interest. And, and we see, we've seen for the U.S. men's national team, and it's, and it's not been just 2018. It's probably going as far back as probably 2016, a decline where the attendances have been lower. 
uh, year after year after year. And going back to well, well and, and the USSF doesn't care because USSF is all focused on and, and Major League Soccer joins at the hip is all focused on the on the business metrics, which is which is revenue, which is bringing in as much money as possible, doing the deals with Nike, doing the deals with Fox and ESPN and Univision, uh, doing all these business deals that they ha- they have. That's what they're focused on, and from that perspective. Um, that's that's what they're looking at. They're not looking at um, the average fan or, or kind of declining interest. So but, here's, let, me, let me just finish. Here's the but but, but oh, pe- people are voting with their feet. And for all the bad things that you say about, you mean these glorified friendlies or these con jobs or all these different things that are happening for these European clubs or clubs from around the world coming I over. I wasn't re- referring to European clubs when I said okay, European, European clubs. Con. The number. No, I was I was referring to the U.S. Soccer Federation conning. It has right. nothing to do with European clubs. So don't don't be so sensitive about it. I know. No, but talking. what I'm saying is is that. Those numbers, people are voting with their with their feet and actually going to the games, and those numbers are as high as they've ever been. So, I mean, the narrative is, and a lot of this comes from MLS reporters, where they just completely ignore the ICC or completely ignore any teams coming from Europe or anywhere around the world to come play games in the United States. They completely ignore, ignore it as if as if it doesn't happen. And you can look at the most attended games. You can look at all the metrics from the ICC and, and other types of uh, teams. As a whole, those are, are much much greater than they used to be. Yes. You mean if you have your Fulhams and West Ham Uniteds, they're not going to get 40,000 fans, but they still get decent numbers. I I think uh, actually you're incorrect on that. I think uh, five years ago it was a problem. More and more people, there are some exceptions. There are some that still won't cover the ICC, but I think more and more people uh, acknowledge it exists now and and cover it among what you would call, quote, MLS-centric media. Uh, Last point, Chris, maybe the solution is you start boycotting U.S. soccer sponsors. I'm just throwing that out out there. I don't want to see that happen because I want to see this federation be successful and this national team be successful and uh, see see something change. But you just mentioned their focus on the commercial deals, you're absolutely right. That's the takeaway. Okay, that's we had a 20 minute discussion or whatever on all this other stuff. That's the takeaway. They're focused on re upping with Nike, re upping with uh, their other commercial sponsorships that come through some. The rest of the sponsorships are negotiated by some. The Nike deals directly by the Federation. Maybe you put pressure, maybe not boycott U.S. soccer sponsors, because again, we want U.S. soccer to be successful. Maybe what you do is you put pressure on those sponsors, making it clear that you're not happy with the direction of the U.S. men's and women's national team programs. And and Chris, we might be having this conversation three years from now on this podcast about the women's team being in decline. So um, this isn't just uh, uh, relative to the men's game. The women's uh, game, the the, the results continue to be good at the senior national team level, but we're seeing uh, signs of cracks at the uh, youth national team levels. And that was the first sign with the men's national team. Some of us, myself included, uh, chose to ignore it. Well, I didn't completely ignore it, but that the U-20s and the U-17s weren't as successful as they had previously been around 20, uh, 20, uh, 10, 2012, 2014. And then that seeped into the men's national team. Same thing might happen with the women. Yeah. And if I'm a Nike or if I'm a Fox or Univision or ESPN, I'm looking at the metrics going that there's a problem right now with U.S. men's national team more so. If in Nike, you're looking at uh, 2018, and all, I'm sure they lost millions on the the potential of all these shirt sales. Uh, I'm sure Fox and Univision and ESPN are looking at the numbers in terms of the U.S. men's national team and the declining uh, TV audience, um, as well as the attendances at these games. So, so the sponsors are definitely going to be tougher, I think, on U.S. soccer and on some um, in the deals that come up. But uh, and, and they're going to put more and more pressure on the U.S. men's national team to perform and, and to actually qualify, win the Gold Cup, you mean qualify for the World Cup. And um, I don't know. It's, go- it's going to be rough. It's going to be a rough few years. And uh, 
yeah, we have to wait and see what happens. And to my overall point uh, earlier, not my overall point, but my earlier point about Greg Berhalter, Chris, I'll leave leave this discussion on this. Uh, I, I like what I see from watching a lot of Columbus. I also note that it, mo- it was mostly done with foreign players, at least in the attacking end. So uh, Berhalter may have a system. He might have a style. He may have personal preferences for how he wants the U.S. to play. I'm not sure American players are at the level right now to implement his style. Mm-hmm. So it might we might have more hard times. And if if the U.S. does not win the Gold Cup, I think that's the metric. If, if they don't win the Gold Cup, we're going to have more problems. We're going to have a conversation like this times two in, in six months or whenever the Gold Cup ends uh, in July. Right. Yeah. And I think everyone's kind of thinking that uh, qualification for the 2022 World Cup is, is a guarantee that's going to happen. But uh, unless uh, FIFA does change the number of teams uh, and move it up to 48 for 2022, which they're talking about, uh, the U.S. could find themselves not qualifying. They could find themselves, uh, you mean, kind of uh, fourth ranked or fifth ranked in, in CONCACAF, uh, yeah. depend, depending on what happens. Right, one last more news item, Kartik, before we move on, uh, and that's a real quick one, and that's ESPN2 has lost their number two position among sports networks in the United States for the first time in 25 years. So for the last 25 years, it always been that ESPN was number one, ESPN2 was number two in the uh, the amount of viewers, etc., that, that watch the sports networks. Now ESPN is still number one. Number two is NBCSN. Number three is FS, FS1. And then number four is ESPN2. So a big hit to ESPN2, but big gains there for NBCSN and for FS1. And two reasons for that, Kartik. Well, actually one reason is soccer. I mean, NBCSN with the Premier League and, of course, Fox FS1 with uh, the World Cup. Uh, that's had a big, big impact on those numbers. Yeah, although, again, ESPN2, I guess, shows a fair amount of soccer. There's just a uh, decline with ESPN. Now, uh, Chris, it's, this is the time, I guess, to mention, and I'll just mention this in passing, that uh, a lot of people complain about the, the, the size of their cable bill, right? People, you've cut the court, but people who haven't cut the court, so much of that is due to ESPN that I think people are cutting cable. If they had the option of a la carte cable and they could just pull ESPN and ESPN2 out of their cable bill, they might keep cable. Uh, just another topic to throw out there. All right, let's move on to TV ratings. Uh, a big one this past week, and that was the Liga MX uh, Apertura final, two legs. Uh, the two legs combined was 4.8 million people that tuned in to watch uh, Club America uh, win against Cruz Azul. Uh, that was matches on the Thursday and then the second leg on the Sunday across Univision and Univision Deportes Network. So massive numbers there for Liga MX, and, and congratulations uh, to Univision. Some other big numbers, uh, 1.15 million people tuned in to watch Liverpool against Man United on Sunday. Uh, This game was on uh, NBCSN and Telemundo, uh, the final game for uh, Jose Mourinho in that one. And uh, any other numbers, Kartik, that that jump out? Yeah, I think both the... uh the Liverpool Man United number was really high for a Sunday morning match on ESP, on NBCSN, uh, and it was also on Telemundo, as you mentioned. The Fulham West Ham number is low for an NBC match. Uh, now, I was watching actually Dortmund at the same time against uh, Werder Bremen on FS2, I believe it was on. I can't even remember now. Maybe it was on FS1. But um, that was low, and the other number was high, which uh, I, I don't know what to make of that because uh, generally you don't see NBCSN matches with that many more views viewers than uh, NBC matches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and part of it too. Unfortunately, Fulham just, just looking pretty uh, dire this season. So uh, 
not a lot of uh, which in, in previous years that would have been probably a big number with the Fulham America uh, that would have been a big deal but these days uh, Fulham not, not so good to watch at least not now uh, moving on to listener mailbag uh, John Average Geek says I think Atlanta being a dominant club is good like DC United at the beginning of MLS if one team sets a bar everyone has to up their game Chris Hardy says, hello, I'm an American and somewhat new to soccer, been off and on for a while, but I'm getting back into it. I read on Wikipedia that the Capital One Cup, now the Carabao Cup, wasn't important to big clubs or a priority or something like that. So that, that's why they arrest their star players. Is this true? Can you explain this to me? I don't get it. I thought every match was huge. Shouldn't they be? I know it's Wikipedia, but that uh, line bothered me. Kartik, what do you think about this? Uh, yeah, be, be, be I Man think City it's been it's generally true. I mean, unfortunately, you see a lot of squad rotation. The Carabao Cup, you have to remember, it's different than the FA Cup in that it's a midweek. Uh, the, the matches are midweek fixtures. So uh, they're, they're usually squeezed between Premier League rounds, uh, always squeezed between Premier League rounds, and sometimes uh, in a period of, of a lot of uh, fixture congestion with Europe, et cetera, for the big clubs. Uh, you even saw it yesterday with the Arsenal-Spurs match. There was intensity from the players, but I, I felt like – the crowd intensity wasn't what it was when those two sides faced each other at the Emirates two weeks ago or three weeks ago in the league. Um, there's just United played City in Pep's first season. Uh, it was a, it was the first Pep Mourinho matchup or maybe the second Pep Mourinho matchup uh, in in the Premier League, and it, it didn't have the intensity. I remember one year when Liverpool played United, you would think that would be huge uh, in the in the then Capital One Cup, uh, and it didn't have the intensity. I my only explanation, Chris, is it's midweek. That, and and um, managers rotate. Uh, but what we've seen also is a lot of uh, smaller teams rotate too because there's always something going on. This is the thing, I guess, the, 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 the mistake that a lot of folks make. Um, there are teams pushing for promotion from the championship who have to get through a 46-match gauntlet to get to the Premier League, mm-hmm. uh, to, to get promoted. They, the top teams in the, in the uh, um, championship I've seen do more to kind of throw, if you want to call it throw, throw cup matches than even the top Premier League sides, where they're just rotating completely. You'll see it in the FA Cup third round with uh, the teams chasing promotion to the Premier League. So unfortunately, that's where cup football is in England. Yeah, yeah, that answers that question pretty well. And it's one of those things that uh, clubs have to prioritise or managers have to prioritise uh, the importance of uh, different competitions. And Champions League usually is number one, number two is the Premier League, number three is probably the League Cup and FA Cup combined, depending on where that club is and what round they're in. But they just have to figure out a way to prioritise um, the competitions that are going to generate the most amount of revenue for their, their club at the end of the day and a greater ch- chance of uh, silverware. Toby Schumacher says, uh, am I reading this right? And the MLS Cup is moving to Sunday against the NFL and possibly NASCAR. No way would happy t- would, ha- would TV partners be happy to allow this move from a r- relatively barren sports day that was starting to get some traction. November 12th, uh, Atlanta versus NYC FC got all of 285,000 viewers on ESPN. The only way this might work is to move it to ABC in primetime. Would get killed by Sunday night football, but even America's funniest home videos gets four million on ABC on Sunday night. Maybe that's the plan. Get three to four million and have MLS uh, write breathless press releases. High fives all around. 
And uh, Jason Ryder says, uh, this is the last uh, comment here on the listener mailbag. I have a question for the podcast. Have you noticed the contrasts between Netflix's Sunderland Till I Die and Amazon Prime's Man City's All or Nothing? There are contrasts in the results on the pitch, the transfer dealings and the overall uh, uh, competency of um, management and players. Also very noticeable are the facilities and dressing rooms that you see in the background. Would love to hear your thoughts in comparing and contrasting the two series with each other. In Kartik, you've done this a little bit already. I haven't. I still haven't seen the uh, All or Nothing series from Amazon on Man City. But any other comparisons or contrast uh, between the two documentaries or the, or the two clubs? Yeah, I guess you do see the contrast between a really well structured uh, club with with incredible facilities and, and spending a lot of money, and then that, as you mentioned, being the show, Chris, absentee owner that's not spending much money. Um, that having been said. As I think I put on Twitter and got all this backlash, which I mentioned earlier in the show, the Manchester City series on Amazon Prime is essentially club propaganda. It's essentially every everything is highly sanitized from where I sit, mm-hmm. whereas the Sunderland documentary, it wasn't. Uh, I'm not giving Netflix credit vis-a-vis Amazon because we had a previous Netflix documentary on Juventus, which was highly sanitized as well, uh, much like the Manchester City documentary. And I've seen Amazon Prime do some very good things as well. So it's, it's just these two, this, this specific example. But I think part of the contrast you see is because Sunderland allowed more of a no-holds-barred look uh, at the club uh, where, uh, and, and at the community and at the city, whereas Manchester City seems to have tightly scripted what Amazon could do mm-hmm. and what the producers could do a little more tightly. So um, I think it, it's, it's difficult to draw conclusions because I just think the, the overall editorial tone of, of, of the two uh, documentaries is completely different. And I, I know there's going to be Manchester City fans for that so i'm prepared we might have a mailbag full of it next week chris <laughs> yeah definitely all right listeners if you do have any questions or any feedback or you want some advice uh you agree or disagree with anything we've said you can always reach us via email through web at worldsoccertalk.com as well as facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk and on twitter at worldsoccertalk uh, plus of course you can always uh, post your comments on worldsoccertalk.com We'd love to get your feedback. Uh, it's really kind of the engine that drives this show. And we love getting uh, questions from you, the listeners. So definitely let us know. So, Kartik, in closing, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. You can get a new episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast every Thursday. Every episode is released on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Audioboom, and WorldSoccerTalk.com. If you like the show, share it with your friends on social media and give us a review on iTunes. And, Kartik, uh, going into another weekend another big weekend you've got uh, Cardiff against Man United with uh, Solskjaer uh, coming back to uh, be caretaker manager of Man United uh, against his former club that he, he took down and got relegated uh, as well as plenty of other matches going on what should they do? And you've got one and two in the Bundesliga by the way on Friday to kick off the weekend Dortmund and Gladbach and watch that in all the Premier League and enjoy your football Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.